Good morning, Hillside. Um, I'm not sure who that service host was, but uh, I think he takes after his mother. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you're with us this morning. And again, as we've said already, happy Thanksgiving. And thank you. Uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm thankful for the community here at Hillside. And I'm thankful for you in, in so many ways. Uh, I've, I was reflecting this week of your generosity. Last week, as we mentioned, the, the Ride for Refuge team, just a report on that, we had a record number of riders, 28 riders that rode on behalf of refugees for Journey Home Community, and we raised, broke our, our best number by almost double. $9,000 was raised for Journey Home. Isn't that awesome? And uh, then, as we said, we more than met our goal of five grand to love on and invest in one of our school uh, local schools, I, I love what we're doing there. What a blessing. When we give and when we love and we serve the vulnerable in, our, vulnerable in our community, there's no question our Heavenly Father smiles. And, and I'm glad we have a Thanksgiving holiday here in Canada, not just because I love a good feast. Well, and you know I love a good feast. But it's, again, a reminder to give thanks, to practice gratitude. And I think we need this spiritual discipline or practice more than ever. Uh, 2020, you could call it maybe the year of the complaints. And so we wanna give thanks because practicing thanksgiving has a way of, uh, of cultivating faith and, and hope in our lives. I like the point G.K. Chesterton makes. He says, the worst moment for an atheist is when they feel a profound sense of gratitude and have no one to thank. We do have someone to thank. Why don't we pause for a moment and just give thanks to our maker. Father God, this morning, we bless you and we thank you that you are so good. You are awesome and we feel so blessed by you. Even in the midst of difficult times, you promise that you'll always be with us. Even in the midst of, of storms and troubles and uncertainty, you are our rock and our refuge. And uh, we say thank you that, that even... When, when we're not sure about the outcomes, uh, we're sure about Jesus and what he's done for us. And so, so God, we thank you this morning. Thank you for the food that we have and, and that you uh, are with us in, in profound ways. Bless us, Lord, we pray. Speak to us this morning, we ask. We give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Well, in this series that we're in, which we're titled uh, God Has a Name, we're walking through Exodus 34 verse six and seven. And if you're just joining in, you can go back. I'd encourage you to do so. Go back and watch the intro messages. But we're still early on as we consider the importance of God giving his name and then sharing with us his characteristics, his character qualities. It's, it's good. And, and again, shout out to John Mark Comer for his book titled John, uh, God as a Name, which has really inspired this series. The opening line of our text begins with Yahweh, Yahweh, or Lord, Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. We, we've learned so far that, that Yahweh is God's name. His name is not God. <laughs> Scripture rarely calls God, God. And in this passage, God repeats himself. He repeats his name to make you know, us kind of pay attention. Now, why does a name matter? Well, a name actually helps us differentiate someone from someone else, right? Our son, Caleb, he went to school for a term in Sweden, and he was going to a school that was already in session, 
uh, there was just a 60 students, and there were already four Calebs at that school. So they kind of arbitrarily decided to, to name Caleb or go, call Caleb by his middle name, which is Derwin. Right? So good. So for three months, there was a Derwin Jr. walking around the backwaters of Sweden. How great is that? So question for you, why does God need a name? The short answer is because there are other gods, and Yahweh wants to differentiate himself from those other gods. Now this morning, i got to say this is probably going to rock our minds a little bit, and some of you struggle maybe a little bit with believing in God, and, and I'm going to tell you that there's other gods. I, I'm going to ask you to kind of ride this out, be patient, stick with me, and, and other news, this is going to be a bit of a cliffhanger. This is a two, two-parter, so we're not going to have all the answers today, probably not next week either, but uh, next week, I want you to come back, and we're going to think more deeply about the implications that there is more than just one God, that there are gods. So, so we'll, we'll get to that. But to set the stage, let's flash back to the beginning for a minute. Uh, the first line of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is uh, back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we're talking Adam and Eve days, right, where we learn about this God who is creator of everything, but at this point in the story, he is yet unnamed. He's simply called God. The Hebrew word for God was Elohim. Elohim isn't really a name. It's kind of like a category, and and it's a word used not just for Yahweh. It's used for all sorts of other spiritual beings. Uh, John Mark Comer defines Elohim quite simply as an invisible but real spiritual creature. And you know, the remarkable thing about the creation story in Genesis, we might not get this, but we're told there's one Elohim who made everything. You name it, he made it. And this would have been a big deal to claim in that day, 4,000 years ago or so. There were already all, all kinds of other ancient creation myths floating around back then. And what all of them seemed to claim was the universe was created in the aftermath of a cosmic battle between the gods. But this is where the Bible claims something substantially different from all the other creation myths. It claimed one true creator God who made everything and the universe, and it wasn't created out of conflict, but it was like an overflow of of God's love and creativity. So you have God, the uncreated one, who is the creator of everything, and there's the, the gods, Created and invisible spiritual beings, these other Elohim aren't even in the same category of of creator God, but that doesn't mean they're not real. Maybe you've sensed this in in your own experience sometimes. Let me explain. A couple weeks ago, I I was at a pastor's conference out in Chilliwack at at our camp, Cheris Camp, and uh, I I love going to Cheris. It's a beautiful camp set on the side of a mountain, and... uh, For for like 75 years or so, their mission has been to share Jesus and to help people grow in him. And they got this little prayer cabin that they make available for pastors, and I've gone there to pray. And I I don't know what it is, but when I come onto that property, and and sometimes when I come to a place like Cheris that's been prayed a lot and where Jesus has been lifted up a lot, there's a sense of God's presence there in a very powerful way. They, they call, sometimes call these places 
thin places where it seems like the spiritual world and the physical world are, are fused together in a very special way. But I've also been in places in the world where I sense a very different kind of presence. You know, I, I think of when we were in Sri Lanka and my son and I, we took a tour of a Hindu temple while a Hindu service was going on. And I don't believe in Hinduism per se, but there was a sense of some kind of real spiritual presence in that place. I think of friends who've, who visited Auschwitz and some of the other German execution camps, the gas chambers, and, and just they said even as they walked on the property, they could sense a spiritually dark presence in that place. Have you ever had that? As John Mark Comer talks about, you, you walk past an idol or, or a temple or a yoga studio or a certain neighborhood, and even though you can't explain it with your, you know, your rational Western mind, you get the nagging sense something is there, that there's something to it that's real. Well, we read about these real but in, invisible beings all throughout Scripture. In the book of Exodus, the primary plot line is, is Yahweh delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And there's this line in Exodus 12 where Yahweh says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And then we have this extended story of the 10 plagues. Do you remember these? These weren't like random plagues. Archaeologists and, and Bible scholars have found many of the, these plagues seem to be directed towards specific Egyptian gods. Amun-Ra was, was like the king of the Egyptian gods. He was the sun god. So what does Yahweh do as one of the plagues? He brings darkness on the land and blots out the sun for three days. And, and it's like Yahweh is making the statement, I'll show you who the god of gods is. I'll show you who the god of the sun is. And it's apparent that, that Yahweh's relationship, as we see outlined in Scripture, his relationship with these pretender gods is not a friendly one. He's at war with them. And we see that warfare language all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. When Israel's finally freed from slavery in Egypt, we read in Numbers 33 that Yahweh has brought judgment on their gods. And then Jethro, very cool guy, Moses' father-in-law, makes this observation. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. You see, Yahweh doesn't compete with these gods. He's greater than. He's in a class all by himself. He's the only God deserving of worship. And that's actually how the Israelites respond to, from, to their deliverance from these gods in Egypt. They worship. They worship God. They, they sing a song. We, ha we have recorded a song that they sang. Sorry, you can't get this on Spotify. <laughs> Exodus 15. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Later in the Psalms, they would continue on in the spirit of prayer and worship. Psalm 86. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. Psalm 96, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. And then Psalm 97, worship him, all you gods. 
For you, Lord, are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The Psalms were saying even the gods are to worship God because he is the most high over all the gods. Like we said a few weeks ago, he's the king of the gods and so much more. And then we get to the Ten Commandments, which kind of make this far more personal. Can you remember what the first one is? You shall have no other gods before me. Which is, again, assuming that there are other gods that you can actually worship. And that we're not to worship those gods. The second commandment goes on to talk about not making or, or worshiping idols. Now, now, as John Mark Comer points out, it's easy in our minds simply to kind of collapse those two commands, those two commandments into one. No other gods, no idols. And, and while they're similar, they're, they're actually not the same. Do you remember what a god is? An invisible but real spiritual creature. Now, what is an idol? An idol is, is some kind of inanimate object. An idol isn't living. I mean, it can be a statue. It can be made of wood or metal, or it's an image of a kind that, that points to something else. Comer explains this well. He says, by itself, an idol can't do anything to you. It's a hunk of rock. But the Elohim that are sometimes lurking behind or represented by the idol, imbuing it with power, well, they can. Some of them are actually quite powerful. That's when an idol becomes dangerous, when it becomes a gateway to a real spiritual being. You ever, you ever wondered why in Scripture there's just so many warnings against idolatry? What if it's not just a jealous God who's upset that we're giving our attention to other gods? You know, what if it's also just a dangerous gateway to a spiritual being that is real and whose wish for you is not good? Desire for you is to enslave you. His desire is not kind, not calm, not safe. Well, for the enslaved Israelites, their, their deliverance story has a bit of what you might call a shootout at the OK Corral. You have Moses in Exodus 9 to 12, where you have Moses in, in Pharaoh's throne room saying on Yahweh's behalf, let my people go, right? I always hear that in Charlton you know, Heston's voice. And, and Moses, to show he's really from Yahweh, does these you know, miraculous signs, again, You've seen the film, Ten Commandments, or, or, or Prince of Egypt. You'll, you'll remember these scenes. I read and reread these stories as a kid. Lots of drama. First, Moses throws down his staff, and he turns his staff into a snake. But then Pharaoh's magicians do the same. Moses then turns the Nile River into blood. But Pharaoh's magicians, they're able to copy this miracle. And when I read those stories as a kid, I was confused. It was like, how were they able to do that? I believed in God, the one and only God, God alone. But these are the gods at work. These are real spiritual beings connected to the Egyptian gods who are working through these magician priests. As the story continues, the Egyptian priests are soon outmatched. Uh, Moses turns dust into gnats. 
and they're not able to repeat this. But, but the whole point of this is, is these other gods have a level of power even to do supernatural things. And, and Yahweh warns his people, never, never worship them. In fact, if we turn to Deuteronomy 6, we find what's called the Shema. If, if Exodus 34 is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5 was the most recited. This was the Hebrew prayer to pray. They inscribed this prayer on their doors. They, they touched that prayer when they came in and when they left. Uh, they prayed it every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, worship God, worship Yahweh, and worship him alone. Don't give your allegiance to these other gods who, if you do, they will enslave you. Well, sadly, uh, the people of Israel, the rest of the story of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is often a story of them turning away to other gods. It's kind of a, on a loop, worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations about them. In fact, Scripture seems to say that these were, were gods with, with power and authority over specific geographic regions and ethnic groups or nations. You can read about some of these listed in 1 Kings 11. There's actually many, many listed in the rest of Scripture, probably a couple of dozen. But for example, Ashtoreth was the goddess of Sidon, which was modern-day Lebanon. Moloch, who was an awful god to worship, he was the god of the Ammonites. That was another part of Jordan. Shemosh was, to quote 1 Kings, the detestable god of Moab. You know, we see this idea of spiritual powers over the nations all, all throughout the Old Testament. But, but in Daniel 10, there's a fascinating story about Daniel's prayers going unanswered for three weeks. Finally, uh, as a response to his prayer, an angel comes to him from God to say he was late because the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. That the prince here is some spiritual being who is backing the Persian Empire. The angel goes on to say that there's another prince of Greece that he has to contend with as well. So we're thinking about a, a backstory that's happening in, in the, the heavenlies that we have no idea about, this, this power over nations. I, I think it was Dutch Sheets, uh, an author on prayer, who first kind of exposed me to these ideas, and I'm like, what? I never learned this in Sunday school but that there's so much more going on than meets our eyes. There, there are powers at work. There, there are spiritual beings who seem to have a measure of power and, and authority over people and places and sometimes even nations. Um, John Mark Comer gives another example of some of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history and how two of them happened not too far from each other in Colorado. You'll, you'll remember the one the Columbine High School shooting in 1999 where 13 people were gunned down. And then in Aurora, in that city uh, not too far from there, in 2012 when a gunman killed 12 people and injured 59 more inside a movie theater showing the film The Dark Knight. And there have been four other large shootings that have happened in that same kind of region or area of Colorado and, and, and John Mark Comer suggests this could be 
like a coincidence. But maybe, he says, and he says this is full-on speculation, there is a spiritual being in that area, and he's malevolent and violent and cruel with an influence over certain desperate people. And every few years, we see his handiwork on the news. He goes on to say, even if that's a bogus theory, I do know there are areas in my own city where there's a dark, oppressive shadow. Something's there. You feel it when you walk past a house or through a park or into a store. You have this sense that you're not alone and whatever it is that's, that's with you isn't good. I used to sense kind of a similar thing when I lived in Port Coquitlam for many, many years in the, in the neighborhood. We, we'd go for a walk uh, often, and there was this kind of darkness over this particular neighborhood. And uh, we used to pray walk. We used to go there, and occasionally, as we were going, we pray, God, would you shine your light on this dark place? Whatever has gone on here, we pray you'd expose it and, and liberate it in Jesus' name. I'd pray those kind of prayers. And I wonder if that prayer wasn't answered in some measure in 2002 when Willie Pickton was arrested. At the time, he confessed to 49 murders. Where did he commit his crimes? In the same neighborhood that I sensed that darkness. Now, folks, I don't pretend to understand all the dynamics at work here, but it's clear that if we had all believed the Bible... And, and, and see the evidence of our own experience that there are real gods as depicted by the Bible. There are all sorts of, of words used in Scripture to describe this, this spiritual reality, reality, terms like gods or heavenly beings or, or sons of God or sons of the Most High, cherubim, seraphim, angels, demons, princes, lords, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, powers of this dark world, evil spirits. They're mentioned a lot. And there's so much we don't know about these things. It's, it's not like scripture is like Wikipedia giving us everything we ever wanted to know, to know about these gods. Um, I, I really love superhero origin stories. You know, so I loved seeing like Clark Kent and and Bruce Wayne in their families as kids, or, or Wonder Woman on her island as a young girl. But with these spiritual beings, Scripture doesn't give us their origin stories. I mean, Scripture kind of trips us up right out of the gate, I'd say, in the first chapters with a snake in the garden. We don't know where or why or how long we do know in ancient days that a snake was a well-known symbol for chaos and evil. So we don't know a lot, but as John Mark Homer describes, what is clear is that we live in a spiritually dense world, jammed with both human and non-human beings beyond measure. It's also clear that these spiritual beings, just like humans, have a measure of free will and autonomy. They can obey and serve Yahweh, or they can rebel and war against him just like us. Some of them love creator God. Others hate and rage against his existence. Some of them are good. Others are evil and noxious and sadistic and cruel. 
And, and all throughout the story of God, you, you could kind of sum up the dominant sins of Israel as two things. Idolatry and injustice. Those are the two big ones. Those are, those are the ones that God gets most concerned about. And, and the temptation was never to worship Yahweh or fill in the blank. It was always Yahweh and something else. Israel always seemed to be tempted towards this polygamous relationship with the gods rather than with God alone. And, and the, kind of the overflow of that, the byproduct of it was this injustice and brokenness of the world around them. You know, at some point in the story, the, the Old Testament begins to feel like deja vu, like we've been there, done that. The storyline is on a loop. Israel goes after other gods. Things fall apart for them. They ask Yahweh for mercy, and Yahweh comes to save them. And it happens over and over. It's maybe one of the reasons that reading the Old Testament can be kind of a slog at times. You know, I've, I've read that already. And then this is why you have Psalms like Psalm 82, which is a desperate prayer for God to do something about it, to break the cycle, to, to end the, the power of these wicked rulers, these evil powers, to drive them out and to put a stop to their chaos and to set the world free. This, of course, is where Jesus comes in. He's the answer to that prayer. He is God's answer to the rule of the gods. And, and God's answer to the tyranny of evil and the power of the gods surprisingly, doesn't look like Armageddon. It doesn't look like some out-of-this-world cosmic battle. What does it look like? It looks like the cross. It looks like self-giving love. It looks like a life willingly laid down for others, which in turn defeats the powers in which ultimately will free the world. It's an unbe unbelievable break and change in the story. Folks, this was, I mean, man, I can't believe we're done already. This is part one, okay? And I know you have all kinds of unanswered questions. I promise I'm not gonna get to them all. We'll get to some of them. But we'll tackle some of the big ones next week. We'll talk more about Jesus' victory over darkness and the kind of hope that that can bring for the future and the hope uh, of victory over those powers, we'll look at what that means for us. And we'll talk about the problem of evil and, and how it is connected to those gods. And we'll look at the temptation we have to kind of bow the knee to gods who are not God, not the God, just like the people of Israel and how our own lives can be sometimes like that loop track where we turn to other gods and our lives kind of fall apart and we cry out to God and Yahweh comes to save us again. We'll, we'll also think about worldview and wonder in light of the knowledge of these additional gods, is our worldview sufficient, the one we've been holding? We'll think about that. In the meantime, while, while scripture makes it clear that we're living in a world dense with spiritual powers, Scripture also makes it plain that Yahweh God, he's the one true God. And he's worthy of our worship and our love. And he's the power above every power and the power that all powers 
will be held accountable to. But I want to say this, because if this message has left you feeling just a little bit anxious or confused or a little afraid or fearful, let me remind you of this promise that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans 8. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that awesome? Why don't we pray? Yahweh God. Uh, this kind of thing boggles our mind to know that there are other gods, uh, other spiritual beings who are real. But we want to just acknowledge today that there is no one like our God. There's no one like you. And, and we long to, with our hearts, become those who can love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and all our strength? Would you lead us to, to have no other gods but Yahweh? And, and Lord, I pray where, where we know that there are already idols in our lives, uh, maybe even attached to gods in our day, I pray you'd forgive our sin and lead us back into the worship of the living God, the one true God, that you would have our full loyalty and allegiance. We love you, God. Thank you for who you are. We bless you. And this Thanksgiving weekend, we pray that we might lift our eyes up above the chaos of our world and uh, the sway that it seems like the gods have in our day and lift up the name of Jesus, who is the name above all names. We pray these things together with, thanks, with such thanksgiving. In Jesus' name. Amen.